Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, picking the best of my Times radio show. Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. You, can, you know how to do it. You can listen on the radio, DAB, on a smart speaker, or on the app. Oh, it's Times Radio. You can do that, but we're bringing you the best bits. Uh, one uh, couple of bits of housekeeping. Uh, thank you for all of your messages for people who enjoyed the podcast yesterday, uh, coming live uh, from Westminster. Uh, one or two people thought we were not taking the pageantry seriously enough with a hat on a stick and all that but uh, lots of you seem to enjoy it, so thank you for that other bit of housekeeping this is a message for ben uh ben your dad's been in touch ben uh herneman uh your dad's been in touch saying that listening to the red box podcast does not count as revision for the a level politics exam you're about to sit uh apparently that's what you uh, like to claim was uh, slouching in headphones clearly not writing an essay on classical li- liberalism Ben, I think it probably does count. Uh, I mean, not, not not nothing that I say, but you know, lots of our guests are very smart. So, uh, thank you for listening anyway, Ben. Um, but I hope, please, don't blame me if the exam doesn't go well. Uh, and hello to everyone else who's studying for exams as well, because I think lots of uh, lots of teachers and lecturers tell students to listen to the podcast. Um, I'm not sure if we're Ofsted compliant, but anyway. Right, coming up on today's podcast. Uh, no PMQs today because of all the Queen's speech shenanigans. PMQs will be back next week. But uh, instead, we'll bring you Disunited Kingdom, political news from the four corners of the UK, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. So that's coming up in just a sec. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. No Robert Crampton today is offered a secret mission for the Times magazine. So today's columnists were Alice Thompson and Patrick Kitt. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the morning we always speak to two of our favourite columnists. And on a Wednesday, it is usually Alibert, but Robert Thompson's been dispatched on some secret mission for the Times magazine. So we do have Alice Thompson. Morning, Alice. Morning. And uh, the the understudy, the Prince Charles to Robert Crampton's Queen. Uh, is Patrick Kidd. What about Patrick? I should just have one of Robert's hats next to me. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a sort of flat tweed cap or something. A flat tweed cap on the throne, uh, <laughs> on the throne next door. Uh, nice to uh, nice to have you both. Uh, nice to have you both with us. What did you make of it yesterday, Patrick? It was a it was a slightly I mean even more scaled down. Is there a point at which there is just no pomp? 
I don't want to lose the but I love the pomp and the guilt complex that we have there. And I thought it was a really nice touch to have the the, the crown on the th on the th uh, the cushion next to Prince Charles and him not sitting in in the throne but on the on the understudy's bench. The, what, what I particularly liked there was a picture of the mace being carried in the back of a car and it was sticking out the window. And someone said <laughs> it was like a dog going on holiday, sort of <laughs> eagerly sticking its nose out. I, I said on the show yesterday, it looked a bit like when, which I actually did this job last night. When you go to the dump and you can't quite fit everything in and <laughs> shut the boot, so you need like the the long bit sticking out. There's the lots of it. There's the mace, the cap of maintenance, the yeah, sword of state. And, the sword um, of state. I was I was learning in, in real time on the show yesterday. Um, what did you make of it, Alice? Well, I love all that. I have to say, I like the tights as well. I think, you know, men in tights look great. It's basically pantomime, isn't it? Which we've got the light and we don't get till Christmas. And who's behind you? And although Michael Gove did quite a good impression today, didn't he? I think he's been carrying it on. <laughs> <laughs> what is Michael Gove doing? Uh, go on, go on. Go on. There's another good excuse to play it again. An emergency budget. A major capital letters. Big news story. Calm down. Uh, he also, uh, in another appearance, on ITV's Good Morning Britain, he said the idea of the Prime Minister should, should resign is bonkaroonie. Is he all right, Alice? Well, I'm getting a bit nervous about him, actually, aren't you? Because we haven't seen him for months. He's been tucked away. He hasn't been allowed out. And now that he is allowed out, I think he's a bit sort of, you know, all over the place, isn't he? <laughs> he's probably making the case of why he should be kept in. Um, uh, let's in terms of the, the, some of the policies in uh, in the in the Queen's speech yesterday, um, and the one that's made the, the front page of the Times, neighbours get the right to vote on housing plans. I feel like we've been around this block so many times, Alice. With, well, uh, this is another Michael Gove problem, is that actually he doesn't want to force, and nor do the Tories, force everyone, especially in their own um, constituencies, to have all these houses you know, forced onto them and to have all this building. So what he thinks he's done cleverly is to make the neighbours all decide. But actually, as we all know, the neighbours are never going to decide. We can't even decide who puts the bins out when or who's <laughs> put the dog poo where. So I think the idea that everyone's going to agree on a street or in a village or a town is just completely bonkers but does mean that instead of the government being blamed, it will be your next-door neighbour. Uh, the thing is, Patrick, I thought uh, that... Uh, there's something I wonder whether sometimes it's a sort of Westminster bubble conservative groupthink thing that thinks that people don't want houses. I thought there'd be... Uh, there's actually quite a lot of research that, that parents and grandparents are seized by this problem because they can see their kids haven't got anywhere to live. Yeah, it's, it's ludicrous. Someone 10 years younger than us um, trying to get on the market now would require an enormous... Well, they, they get help from their parents, of course. Um, on the front page of the paper, Robert Jenrick is saying we're going to miss the target of 300,000 new homes a year by a country mile. And so suddenly allowing people to, to have a referendum on whether number 23 can have a greenhouse or something just, just seems to be fiddling. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, we were on the show yesterday, we were looking back on... Uh, the, the first time the Queen spoke at the State of the Parliament in 1952, where she talked about the importance of housing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and back then, I was just trying to remember the numbers. of something like 190,000 homes, I think, they built in 1952. And last year, it was something like 150. We're so far from the 300,000. We haven't done 300,000 in this country for years. Yes. And also the French and the Germans seem to do it. I mean, that's what's extraordinary is the British have such problems about building. And when we do, they're all totally identical. I mean, I think more is that we just need better houses. And we, you know, the big housing companies, which they have said now, do need to start helping with the infrastructure. So if you're told 
that you're going to have your housing estate, which we've got in Devon just being built near us. Actually, it's great and fantastic, but they're not building an extra school and they're not building any more, you know, doctors, um, GPs, surgeries, and there won't be any more green space. If they, you know, said, we'll do this, but we'll put in a park and a playground, people would be much happier. And, and roads and trains yeah, and things and actually, like that. Yeah. Cou- councils have got those powers. And actually, if councils are worried that if they build a load of, you know, if they grant permission that it might upset people, then blimey, they might be voted out of their district council. That isn't the answer to write all of that into the plan so that, so that you know, people can say... Because actually, quite often, whenever there's these protests, you know, and then when the big uh, estate is built, the, the world keeps turning. Um, it turns out their family, their kids don't have to move miles away for somewhere to live, and actually the, things, are, things are all right. The sort of the nimbyism thing often dissipates once the things have been built. I think it almost always dissipates, doesn't it, actually? It's, and then you move on to the next one. And, and I think what you do need is to say is there are advantages to this. It's like the wind farms that no one realised. And actually, if you say you might get cheaper electricity if you don't mind having them, but that there is always that incentive. If you say to people, actually, your village or town's going to look better, not worse, and have more and you know, is, is going to help you and your family and your children and the grandparents, that would be great. My problem is that a lot of them are too expensive. I look at them and think... Our latest one going up, they're sort of five hundred thousand pounds for a very small three bedroom house. I mean, how? You know, is anyone going to afford that? Really? Well, the Prince of Wales had his chance. He he could have announced, slipped in a line, and no, once he's in, in. (laughs) he could have said a Poundsbury for every district council. (laughs) Yeah, you should have stuck it in because then the government would have just had to go with. They couldn't have Mm. said that the, the Prince Charles had lied. Uh, they'd have had to. Uh, they'd have got, had to go on and, uh, and make it work. Uh, but that's what the government's doing. What uh, you've written about Keir Starmer's uh, uh, gamble uh, or gambit, Alice? Today, gambit. Well, I've written about how he should really be my ideal prime minister because after we've had this sort of, you know, really high adrenaline Boris Johnson for the last two or three years, we're like we. I think everyone's exhausted and just on edge and nervous and everything about him. Whereas Keir is decent, diligent, clever, modest. You know, when he turns up, he'll be wearing the right outfit that he won't have hundreds of parking tickets, that he'll be on time. And in many ways, he's got everything that he should have. He's measured, he's principled in so many ways, but actually there's just something missing. And that's what's so frustrating, that, that, that he hasn't quite got it. And even with a party gate, he seems to be, you know, with beer gate, he's been given all the blame just after the local elections when actually the Tories did very badly. It's now all about him and what he's got wrong. When in fact, you know, he may or may not have had, you know, a curry and a beer while he was working. And he may have just about finished work. But if you look at what was going on in Downing Street, it was just far worse, far more parties, far more karaoke, far more cakes and 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 somehow he's got embroiled in this sort of ridiculous discussion. But isn't the, isn't the problem, Patrick? If you once you take the holier than now approach, you know the, the the thing about nobody's ever voted for Boris Johnson on the basis that he was a, 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 a serial adherer to the rules. Um, whereas that was Keir Starmer's pitch. He's, he's the former director of the pro- public prosecution. Yeah, and he, he is guilty of extreme sanctimony. I, I I mean, calling for Rishi Sunak to to resign. And indeed calling for Boris Johnson to resign when the investigation was launched rather than allowing due process to carry on, I think now looks a bit, bit like a mistake. That's it. I am so bored of this story. I mean, how, how many days now has the Daily Met with 14 days or something? I am wondering whether it's going to come out that Lord Rothermere has actually sold the paper to the Taste of the Raj and it's a way of promoting the restaurant. Every, they're going to change the title to the Dali Mail, perhaps, just as subliminally... Uh, what, what day is it on the front? Oh, actually, it's not on the front today. We've, we've moved got, on. It's the first day. We've got Wagatha Day One. Oh, Wagatha. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. But but yeah, my favourite is when the Daily Mail says, as uh, as Beergate, it's the day 12. It's only, it's only day 12 that you've put it on the front page for 12 days uh, with no uh, no new information. 
but, but actually, I yeah. think the thing for me is that I think Keir Starmer may be a bit like John Smith. And the problem is that he is sort of very, you know, he's, he is in many ways, is actually a safe pair of hands. But actually what you need is you need someone like Wes Street. You need someone else coming up in the Labour Party. And if he does have to resign, I think the Tories may be in a more difficult position because they may get someone from the Labour Party who's actually going to be better than Keir Starmer. And then they'll really, you know, think, God, why did we ever get ourselves into getting rid of Keir when we've got someone worse? It has enabled some some of the cabinet members who don't think things through though to to, to say things that, that have consequences so Nadine Doris saying that Keir Starmer must resign if he had a party not realising the consequence of that is Boris Johnson <laughs> yes. surely has to resign whoa, 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 whoa. I won't have anything said against Nadine Doris I'm not having you come on here and suggest that she might not have thought something through fully I did love your mate Dan, um, Andrew Bridgen as well suggesting that um, we should have a united national police force that the, the, the Met should investigate Durham affairs I'm going to phone my lawyers about the suggestion <laughs> you, you suggesting that Andrew Bridgen is my mate I did see him actually down from a distance down at uh, uh, College Green yesterday but for some reason he didn't come over and say hello I don't know why um, uh, let's talk about uh, um, your revision um, are you excited by your revision Patrick? <laughs> yeah actually I, I love the, sort of the high campness of it all uh, that's on this weekend and of course this is going to be a politically charged one because everyone ex- is expecting that Ukraine who have a fairly mediocre song will win because of the sympathy vote uh, and of course, in the past, we've seen at Eurovision, um, voting is done on political lines. Greece always votes for Cyprus and vice versa. But, you know, now everyone's going to vote for Ukraine because they, they, they don't like Russia. This isn't, however, the first time that politics has got involved in Eurovision. I can tell no. you. In 1974, the Italian song, which was called Si, uh, a word they said 16 times, was banned from Italian radio because they had a referendum on. Um, and they thought it was subliminal. Uh, affecting, oh, really? Uh, no. but having it saying CCC. And the same year, uh, Portugal, their winning entry was used as the signal for a coup to start against the government. Wow. When the Eurovision number was played over the radio. That was it. And it wasn't well, boom, bang, a bang. But <laughs> only because Patrick is so obsessed by the origin. I have now listened to the Ukrainian song. And actually, I think he's dissing it. I think it's actually quite good. And... You, know, you can't not vote for them when they've come out of a war and they're going straight back into a war and they've been looking after orphans. I mean, Patrick, I just think, I think you're too hard-hearted. Maybe, yeah, but it's, it's no Katrina and the waves. But it, um, <laughs> it, it, if, if they win with uh, Stefania, then they get to host it next year. So next Good. year in Mariupol. Yes. Uh, I think that's perfect, don't you think? We can all go. And then actually, I think that's exactly what the Eurovision is meant for. I think it's ideal, isn't it? So that's the second big media event of the week, Alice, because the big media event of the week, of course, is your book launch tonight. Of course. Of course, I hope you're coming. And have you seen, I sent you the outfit I want you to wear. It's the John Paul Gaultier has done a naked... Oh, is, is that what, what you think that I'm going to wear? Yeah, and I'm not wearing it, Patrick. You're all going to wear it, and so are you, Matt, I'm afraid. It's, so it's a, it's a sort of, it's a naked man... Um, no, there's naked woman. It looks like a naked woman. It's a naked actually, woman. You're in right. Selfridges. It costs a fortune. I'm and afraid. it's a it's a sort of um, body all in one body stocking with a photo of a naked woman sort of on mm. it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about where. So, <laughs> Jimmy, are you are you not in the studio because you're at home, sort of rustling up the volivots? Uh, well, I should be, yes, exactly. Although, actually, the Times is very kindly doing that for us. I think all of you are, actually. So I hope you brought some things in. Well, make sure you put um, the, the wine onto warm now. Yeah, start warming <laughs> yes, the wine. Yes. Just, just, just the wine. Obviously, you've never seen the view from the Times either because you've never been into the office. So you won't know. It'll be all original and new for you. Who? Patrick. For you, both of you. Both of you, I think. We're sitting here on the 14th. Yeah, we're the ones here. We can see out of the window. We're the ones. It's very different on the 17th. Uh, we, I've been up to the 17th floor. Anyway, it's going to be lovely. Who, who, um, uh, is it, is it going to be a big bash or is it, is it exclusive? I think it's quite exclusive. We may only say the book is called What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. 
which is the spin-off from your excellent podcast and Times Radio is, series, Past and Perfect. Exactly. So it's going to be lots of our interviewees, although I'm not sure how many of them are going to come because it's probably the ones that like being interviewed by us because Rachel and Sylvester and I have done all the interviews that we have ever done in the last 30 years, I think, which makes me quite old. <laughs> not at all. Well, you must have started when you were, what, 10? Alice Thompson and Patrick Kidd, though, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is this United Kingdom. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. Yeah, it's that time of the week when we get out and about away from the Westminster bubble to find out what's really going on in the four corners of the UK. Uh, coming up, we'll, of course, do our fun story competition to find out the uh, most fun part of the UK. Uh, but first, let's introduce the panel. Uh, flying the flag for Northern Ireland today, Amanda Ferguson is a journalist in Belfast. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Matt. There's a lot happening here today, so we could probably take up the whole show with what's happening in Northern Ireland. But we've I only got am a, aware. A I'm aware. You may well win the competition for the most news. Uh, in in Scotland, uh, political reporter with the Scottish side is Dan Vivas. Hi, Dan. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Very good. Very good. Nice to have you with us. Uh, reporter at Wales Online is Liz Perkins. Welcome back, Liz. Hi there. How are you? Very good. Very good. And uh, we go to Manchester, flying the flag for England Day. Uh, correspondent of Manchester Evening News, Helena Vesti. Hi, Helena. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Nice to have you with us. Go on then, Amanda. Kick us off. Don't eat up the whole half hour. Uh, well, um... <laughs> what's going on in what? <laughs> Not for the first time, we asked. What the hell is going on in Northern Ireland? Well, we don't have government at the moment. We know that the election results came through at the weekend and that Sinn Féin emerged as the largest party. So that's a big deal in Northern Ireland because it's the first time an Irish Republican who's committed to the reunification of Ireland holds that very top position. The DUP came second and there's a bit of a 
uh, an issue now about whether or not uh, the, the parties uh, you know, are going to meet on Friday. Will the DUP uh, participate in, in reforming the new assembly? So far, they've said no to that. Um, another big story uh, coming out of the election is the sort of uh, emergence and the surge in, in support for the Cross Community Alliance Party. But uh, all eyes are kind of on the DUP at the moment uh, because it's looking for movement on the Brexit protocol before it reforms power sharing. So all of the other parties are accusing it um, of holding um, Northern Ireland to ransom and uh, it's a pretty sort of uh, changing uh, atmosphere uh, in this part of the world at the moment. We're not quite sure what's going to happen next, but we do know that we've got 90 new MLAs elected and it could be uh, sometime before we actually get government up, up, up and running. So I'm sure the public will have something to say regarding the, the cost of living crisis and all of the issues that we're exercising them uh, ahead of, of them casting their votes. <laughs> Um, Amanda, I was quite struck yesterday. Um, I, mean, I spoke to Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP, um, and tried to get out of him what exactly it is that he think would he thinks would work. Uh, and I'll be honest, I, w- I was wasn't much the wiser afterwards because um, he appeared to be essentially be suggesting a border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Do you think do, are the DUP using the protocol as an excuse? not to go in and play second fiddle to Sinn Féin, rather than uh, having any expectation that it could be sorted out to their satisfaction? Well, the DUP say they're Democrats and that they're devolutionists and they want to get back to government, uh, but certainly it's a complicating factor that they're, they're not um, sort of in, in the top position anymore. But I, I think, you know, the, the Office of First Minister in Northern Ireland is a joint office. Deputy doesn't mean subordinate. You know, if, if they were named joint first ministers, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But I think that one of the key things that the DUP will be looking out for uh, movement-wise regards the protocol is for the goods that are moving from Britain to Northern Ireland. If they're staying within Northern Ireland, and they don't want any of those to be subject to checks. So maybe if they could get a win on that, uh, it could move things uh, along a little bit. Uh, certainly the, there's a suspicion that the DUP is unhappy that it will be taking that second place. But uh, the, the, the DUP leader did say yesterday evening that if the issues around the protocol are resolved to his satisfaction, uh, that he would be, be nominating ministers. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But um, certainly it's not the first and the last time that there's been a sort of complicated picture about, about governance in Northern Ireland. So I think the story has a way to go yet. Go on then. What's your chances? When do you think we might see Stormont sitting again? Well, they do have up to six months if they choose to take that. But the next movement will be on Friday at midday because that's supposed to be the first meeting of the Assembly. That's uh, due to be when the Speaker's nominated this morning. uh, The DUP indicated that it hasn't made a decision on whether it's going to participate in that. So if you don't nominate a Speaker, you don't pass go and you don't have a shadow Assembly. Uh, So that's uh, causing uh, sort of uh, outrage amongst the other political parties in Northern Ireland at the moment who are saying they want to get back to work, that it's disgraceful that uh, the the assembly would be, be be held up by an issue um, that um, isn't in the DUP's gift to fix that it's up to the UK government and the EU uh, to fix what happens next uh, with the protocol. But depending on on who you speak to and which parts of the government you're hearing from and which parts of the Conservative Party you're hearing from, there could be a movement, there could be unilateral action, things could just continue to rumble on. So uh, after our last collapse in 2017 to 2020, one of the pieces of legislation that was put in place was to give a six-month breathing space to the parties but you know we, we still don't know yet on Friday if we're even going to get past the first uh, hurdle of getting a speaker in place so that a, a shadow assembly could operate in, yeah. in the absence of fully functioning government. 
but that's the, that's the picture of it when it comes to the protocol in the, the assembly sitting. Um, in, in terms of the Queen's speech uh, yesterday, I was going to sort of bounce around and ask everyone uh, for the reaction to Queen's speech. But, but what was there in it? What, what was in there for uh, Northern Ireland? What's particularly caught your eye? One of the big things was uh, was regarding the, the sort of proposals around uh, prosecutions uh, for troubles related um, crimes. Uh, there seems to have been a, a change around now, where instead of a, a blanket amnesty, there could be a condition, uh, there could be prosecutions conditional uh, on cooperation with a, a new truth recovery investigation. And um, we're going to have to wait uh, to see what's included um, in the Northern Ireland Troubles and Reconciliation Bill. The the government's aim, they say, is to uh, maximise information recovery and promote reconciliation uh, but a lot of victims groups have said that you know it, it's an example that lives in Northern Ireland don't matter as they do in other parts of the UK you know one of the examples from the Way of Trauma Centre which which uh, supports victims uh, of the conflict in Northern Ireland was uh, sort of the juxtaposition between uh, the murder of a young man called uh, John Malloy in North Belfast um, and, and the murder of Stephen Lawrence in England you know what essentially what they're saying is with this new um, proposal from the UK government someone could come forward and say that they had murdered John Malloy because he was a Catholic and it was sectarian so how is that any different from you would expect justice in the case of a racist uh, killing and so on so um, it's a very emotive issue here um, and there's again there's a, a while to go uh, on that yet. The other issue that uh, popped up is around the Irish language legislation around the cultural package uh, that the UK government was going to bring forward uh, because the Stormont Assembly hadn't been able to agree to because of um, uh, objections from, from some within the unionist community. So it was around uh, accommodating cultural difference and enhancing and developing uh, both uh, the Irish language and the Ulster-Scots-British uh, uh, tradition in Northern Ireland. So very different issues, but certainly the Irish language community are, are, are wondering and waiting why it, it's taken so long. Blimey, Avanis. That's plenty there for the man to in, uh, in, in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, let's go to Scotland uh, now then. Uh, Dan, what, was the, what were your main takeaways from the Queen's speech from a Scottish perspective? Well, there were um, lots of complaints. And I guess that's not atypical from um, the Scottish government and the SNP. I mean, the main complaint seems to be a lack of any real direct action on cost of living. Uh, that seems to um, have really rubbed people up along the, uh, the wrong way. Um, and I suppose, you know, you have this schism now, and it's not just a Scottish-UK government thing, but it's possibly a left-right thing, possibly a sort of fiscal conservative against liberal thing, where, you know, the Tories are saying uh, we shouldn't be spending more, any more money right now because that will mean borrowing um, because we need to keep inflationary pressures down. But, you know, the Scottish government and others are saying actually these inflationary pressures are really hurting now, so we need action now. And that seems to be the um, sticking point that people can't get past. Um, and I suppose because because of devolution and so on, the the the, the big day in Scotland is when uh, the First Minister sets out her legislative programme, but with slightly less pomp and shiny gold things sticking out of the windows of cars. Yes, that's not really our style um, to have the big golden thrones. I think it's a shame. I think it would, um, it would be quite a good laugh. But um, we, we do sometimes have the Queen pop along um, for uh, the state opening of Parliament and things like that. But no, it doesn't have the same um, pomp and ceremony. But actually mentioning the monarchy, I thought it was interesting. Um, obviously, there's this convention that uh, the monarchs and, and the Queen don't weigh in on political issues directly in terms of making direct statements and there was a line in the Queen's speech yesterday 
about protecting the integrity of the United Kingdom. And uh, there was a few people who got a bit upset by that um, because they said it was putting a, a direct political reference into Charles's mouth. Uh, which I mean, I mean, that is the whole speech. I mean, similarly, does does uh, um, I don't know? Prince Charles agree with selling off Channel Four, or you know, uh, or, you know, that is the nature of the speech. It's written by the government, and it's not you know, it's not supposed to be his or the Queen's view. Indeed, yeah. Um, but you'll remember the, the big furor um, back in twenty fourteen when the, the Queen gave her, you know, not direct um, support for the union, but certainly. Um, gave that impression um, that she didn't want to see a yes vote and uh, that's uh, never been forgotten by nationalists in, in Scotland, that's for sure. It is amazing that, because it, wasn't it something she said someone actually hoped that people would think very carefully and this was yes, interpreted uh, as Queen Queen backs uh, no. <laughs> yeah, in, in, Queen, in Queen lingo that was um, bringing out the Union Jack bunting and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was quite a moment that. Uh, so that's a picture in uh, in Scotland. What about um, what about in Wales, Liz Perkins? What's what's his, what's the Welsh perspective on the Queen's speech? I was going to say I can be quite quick on this one. Um, clearly, it was kind of interesting to see the Prince of Wales reading the Queen's speech, and a lot of it wasn't relevant to Wales because obviously so many, much of it has been devolved. So what is interesting to us is that in terms of the Australia and New Zealand bills, the farmers are in uproar about it. Um, clearly, they've had to suffer as a consequence of Brexit and having these trade deals should be good news. But um, the sad reality for them is that they feel that they won't be able to charge as much for their products and they're going to suffer as a consequence. And they're suggesting it's going to enshrine in fairness and trade for them. I mean, it was referred to earlier on in the news about the fact that, you know, there's going to be a crackdown on these guerrilla type protests. And there's a sense, the two, that other people might suffer as a consequence of that because they want to be able to protest on legitimate issues without doing, you know, employing those tactics. So clearly there was, you know, concern around that as well. Um, and uh, again, when the when you have the the, the 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 Welsh equivalent of the the state opening of Parliament in in Cardiff, uh, how, how does it rate rate on the pomp on the pomp scale? <laughs> I think we do better on pomp, though, don't we? Because we do actually invite the Queen and we have, um, you know, members of the royal family coming there and all the rest of it. And in spite of opposition from, you know, nationalists, even, you know, sometimes they tend to behave. Sometimes you have people calling the Queen Mrs Windsor. You just don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it's caused controversy in the past with some, but it is a bit more, you know, you've got a bit more celebration and and pomp like you say than scotland i think very good so on the on the pomp on the pomp scale uh maybe we ought to try to yeah, work out who does who does the most i mean probably england does do the most pomp but uh in terms of the 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 uh the substance helena in uh for the manchester evening news uh what's been the reaction i mean obviously lots of talk about red wall the north the south the, what the government's doing leveling up and all of that what's what's the what's the picture in manchester response to the queen's speech uh, I, I think um the response to the Queen's speech in Manchester is perhaps best put as mixed at best. I mean, there was uh, there was a great deal, I think, that um, involved Manchester and the wider north um, within that speech. Um, the headline has to be um, levelling up. That's been a cornerstone of Boris Johnson's agenda and it's finally made the statute book. The levelling up and regeneration bill has been unveiled finally. 
Um, and that follows Michael Gove's 300 page white paper, which was published earlier this year. And certainly I think at the time that document left um, a lot to be desired, not least um, in the health sort of category, which is what I cover, um, health inequalities as insofar as they're informed by economic inequalities um, in the North were, were really barely mentioned and, and certainly in health and among many other topics, there have been so many questions about what levelling up will actually look like and if um, the promises that Boris Johnson has made, and he's made really quite large scale promises, will be fulfilled in the end. And what, what really is that going to look like on the ground in, in towns which are seeing their high streets shutting and um, culturally they're not quite as robust as they were um, pre-austerity. And I think that actually raises a really key point that I've seen um, discussed in the wake of the Queen's speech. There's a lot of debate about whether levelling up, particularly through the grants that it provides, will just be building back lost capacity that occurred under austerity. Um, data from independent think tanks show that many northern towns were dis disproportionately affected by austerity. Um, so will they get the same support to build back that level of council support pre-austerity and then beyond that? because that would be the definition of levelling up. It would be building back to what was there before and then some. But will we just see building back to what was there before? I think that's a big question that's sort of been left open-ended. Um, equally, I think one thing that was, that was really good to see um, for everybody in Manchester in the Queen's speech was, um, after much delay, the inclusion of, of Martin's Law, which was campaigned for by Fegan Murray, who's the mother of, of, of um, Martin, who lost his life in the um, Manchester Arena bombing, and also Brendan Cox, who's the, the husband of um, the murdered MP, Joe Cox. And uh, Martin's Law, which is also known as the Draft Protect Duty Bill, um, establishes a, a new framework for public venues, um, which previously weren't required to um, enact free advice that they that they got from specialist counterterrorism measures um, ad advisors rather um, and now this bill means that these kinds of venues will actually have to have a plan in place on how to deal with such an incident so this is a um, bit like they, they already had a responsibility to sort of have a, a fire plan if a fire broke out and exactly. now, now they've got yeah. to have one so if, the, if there were to be uh, a serious terror incident that, that large venues do have a plan to try and avoid some of the issues that arose with the Manchester attack yeah, and, and, and I think the key part of that, again, is, is mitigation as well. What, what happens? What's the immediate plan if something like that, that should unfold? And a lot of that is taken from the learnings of, um, of the arena inquiry and, and naturally quite a painful memory for the city. So I think it's a real positive to see that it's, that it's been included in the Queen's speech. Um, perhaps somewhere in, in between, both a, a positive and a negative, I think, for, for Manchester in the North is is the um, abolishment of no-fault um, evictions, which is now under the Renters' Reform Bill. And that has been um, a, a, among a chief um, cause of evictions in Manchester. And this city, Lord knows, has um, a, quite an acute problem with homelessness. I think um, it's, it's unavoidable. The Greater Manchester yeah. Mayor, Andy Burnham, has spoken extensively about that and has really made it a key part of, of, of his time as the leader of the city. So I think that that is, is a real a positive step um, towards reducing those kinds of evictions. But needless to say, I think that the city still has a long way to go on how it can deal with its homelessness population. And um, that links right back into levelling up and, and getting that funding for, for our cities up here.
Oh, that's the uh, it's a good it's a good old mixed picture of uh, the response to uh, the Queen's speech. Uh, so I'm glad we've uh, we've cleared all of that up. We've done the we've done the political news, which is fine and interesting, but this is the most important bit. This is the uh, the fun story competition. As things stand. Uh, we've been doing this since the beginning of the year. Scotland in the lead with 38 points. Northern Ireland and Wales both tied on 35. And England currently in last place with 32 points. Uh, so uh, let's start with England then uh, today. Helena Vesti, uh, correspondent for Manchester Evening News. What's your fun story from Manchester? Hi, our fun story from, from Manchester is Alex Zinchenko, who is a Manchester City player, Um and he's been um, very vocal in support of his home country, which is currently wracked by war, which is Ukraine. And um, we've seen a number of touching moments involving this player, whether it was standing ovation at Goodison Park or him being handed the captain's armband during an FA Cup match against Peterborough. Um, and now he's sort of um, taken a little 10-year-old boy under his um, wing. And this 10-year-old had to flee his home in Ukraine along with his family um, because of the war and he's received a special gift from the U- Ukrainian player and that's um, that he's been taken to, Ma- to Manchester City to have a visit and, and meet the player and um, in, a, in a nice social media post the, the football player said 75 days ago this boy dreamed of becoming a football player and trained carefree with his team um, and I think that just shows how quickly life has been immensely upended for, for yeah. millions of families and and just shows how these youngsters losing their childhoods is just such a deep tragedy but it is a, a really good example a very thoughtful and kind gesture um from oh, up nice. here in manchester i think it's a nice story it's going to be hard to beat uh but uh we've got another is a, a football story um in scott is this yeah football story in scotland as well dad Yes, it is. Uh, I, I live in Glasgow, so about 50% of the city is extremely excited about next Wednesday when Rangers play in the Europa League final. It's the first time there's been a Scottish team in a European final since 2008. I know that we've won one since like the 1980s. And obviously, as usual with these things, lots of Rangers fans are desperate to get over there. Uh, one of the more innovative means of trying to get there that we discovered is a hot air balloon. Um <laughs> The Rangers fans have been asking uh, a hot air balloon company uh, if they can rent the hot air balloon to fly over to Seville for the match against Frankfurt. Um, There's a few bits of this that I love. Um, The first one is that the hot air balloon firm put out a a message yesterday just saying, uh, "Okay, we've received messages from about three different people asking about balloon flights over the channel to France. We can confirm we do not fly over the channel. If this is a joke, it's a funny one. And I can guarantee it wasn't a joke. So is this because there, <laughs> are, is this because there aren't flights? Well, there are flights, but obviously, as ever with these things, the flights are going up and up and up and demands yeah. are very, very high. So people are trying to find cheap ways of getting over. But the, the funniest part of the story for me is that the British Balloon and Airship Club put out a statement um, on this. And the first thing they said is that if anyone wanted to go by hot air balloon to Spain, they should have set off in middle of March because that's how long it would take to fly there. So... I don't think um, anyone's going to get to Seville by balloon in time for May 18th. That's very good. Right. Uh, non, uh, I think a non-football story now. What have you got for us in Wales, Liz Perkins? I've got rat-eating snakes for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the sort of story we don't have enough of on Times Radio. Go on then. Um, rat-eating snakes uh, yeah. in Colwyn Bay. In Colwyn Bay, the Escalapian rat snake is on the loose. 
And ironically, they actually disappeared from the zoo about 50 odd years ago. And now they're roaming around the countryside. We've even got footage of this snake going across the road. It's just, well, it's worth watching anyway. It's I quite can see ironically. it. I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. You don't really expect this. And they've actually spread from North Wales to Bridgend as well. And it was Robert Jackson, the founder of the Welsh Mountain Zoo, who brought these reptiles in from Italy. And then they started seeing these baby snakes sort of disappearing in about the 1970s. And yeah, they've just gone everywhere. So you can't imagine. I mean, some experts are really excited because years ago they used to be in Britain and now, you know, they really are making a comeback. So if you've got lots of rats in your garden, you probably would like these snakes to suddenly arrive, wouldn't you? But uh, for the rest of us, I don't think I'd want one. Perhaps not. Yeah, but right. Excellent. Very good. Uh, and finally, uh, your story from Northern Ireland, Amanda. Yes, we've got a TikTok fame for a Belfast pensioner after his dance moves go viral. <laughs> so uh, 85-year-old Jim Jordan's slick dance moves have made him a, a TikTok star, a member of staff at Brooklyn's care home in Dunmurray, told Belfast Live that JJ, as he's known, is a real character and that all the staff love him. In his younger years, he was a British Empire Games silver medalist. He won a range of other medals, well known uh, by the boxing community throughout Ireland. So he's retained his light-footed boxing moves and that's helped his dance moves so he loves dancing and is reveling in his newfound fame oh this is this is a tough week this is i mean i think it's going to be very hard to to uh not give the most points to uh the ukrainian uh, child refugee being taken to uh man united training that's very good so we'll give four points to that so four points to england uh Thanks, let's man. give i do like the hot air balloon i like the ingenuity of rangers fans let's give them three points two points to the tiktok sensation and I'm, the only reason i'm giving only one point to the rat eating six foot snakes is that i don't think they should be encouraged um we don't want any other snakes escaping from zoos so we'll give them one point which i think scotland's still in the lead if anything is pulled a Maybe I should. No, I can't change that now. The the, the points have been awarded. They're locked in now. Uh, thank you very much, as ever, for um uh, for your fun stories, but also talking us through the politics of the four quarters of the UK. That was Disunited Kingdom. Helena Vesti, correspondent of the Manchester Evening News. Liz Perkins, reporter at Wales Online. Dan Vivas is a political reporter at the Scottish Sun. And Amanda Ferguson, a journalist in Belfast. Thank you to you all, particularly thank you to Amanda, as she's pointed out on Twitter. Uh, there's so much going on in Northern Ireland. It ate up half of the item. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.